Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still recording from my Cambridge closet. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, sheltering in place in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, April 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The coronavirus pandemic and the economic landscape are growing increasingly grim in the United States. Now, experts are trying to chart a path for how and when we can go back to relatively normal life. Our colleague Sharon Bagley joins us to talk about what's being proposed. Next, we'll talk with cystic fibrosis patient advocate Gunnar Esiason about how the pandemic is affecting people in that and other patient communities. Finally, we'll switch gears to talk about a new documentary about genetics that you might want to check out while you're staying home. The physician and Pulitzer Prize winning author Siddhartha Mukherjee joins us to chat about his latest film called The Gene, which will premiere on PBS next week. So before we get to this week's podcast, Rebecca, Damien, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. That's right. You know, at a time when Stat is making all of its coverage of the coronavirus crisis free, we really appreciate the support for our subscription business. So you may have read the profile of Stat written up in the New York Times this week, which very graciously acknowledged the early reporting done by our colleague Helen Branswell. She was one of the first journalists to pick up on the emergence of the novel coronavirus, which was then spreading through China. And since those stories first appeared in the digital pages of Stat way back in early January, we've been working hard every day to provide the in-depth reporting on the coronavirus outbreak that you've come to expect from us. We're also maintaining our coverage of the science and business of biopharma. So you can help us do all of that by subscribing to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. As a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year using the code P-O-D. I take total responsibility for shutting off the economy in terms of essential workers. But we also have to start to plan the pivot back to uh, economic functionality, right? You can't stop the economy uh, forever. So we have to... That was Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who's earned praise for his COVID-19 response, speaking at a recent press conference. Cuomo was getting at an important question that experts have been increasingly grappling with in recent days. How and when are we going to reopen the economy and how can we do it safely? Joining us to talk about the answers being proposed is Sharon Begley, who's been reporting on this subject extensively. Sharon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Sharon, state and local governments across the U.S. have put in place unprecedented social distancing and economic shutdown measures. You know, those are all designed to slow the spread of the coronavirus. What do experts believe needs to happen from a medical caseload perspective before we can start rolling some of those things back? There has to be a significant decrease in the number of cases added every day. We have to see what the infectious disease community calls a reproduction number lower than one, which basically means that fewer than one case is arising from every currently infected person. So you can think of that as we might have two current cases, but together they produce only one or 
three produce one, et cetera. And that's the only way that you're going to drive the epidemic down to you know, essentially nothingness. And the question, of course, is how soon that can happen. The country has had some degree of social distancing for what are we now in the third, um, in some places, the fourth week. So everybody's looking at when will we start to see that bending of the curve. So a number of the plans that have been put forward by experts seem to think about reopening the economy in a series of phases. At a high level, what do each of those phases generally entail? That a certain number of things will reopen. The last thing you're going to reopen are huge gatherings, um, events, we might call them. Slowly, you might see schools and workplaces start to reopen. And the best sense of how that phased reopening can happen is, not surprisingly, in China, especially in Wuhan. So across China already, something like two-thirds to three-quarters of workplaces are now open. And remember that China instituted the extreme lockdown policy in late January, so call it two months later. Some schools are reopening. Um, universities are not because they draw students from all over and they can therefore be sort of mixing bowls for virus. The schools that have reopened, um, the children are being given fever checks um, before they can come in. They're being watched very closely for symptoms. That's the sort of thing that you can imagine will also happen at workplaces. China is doing that in factories. So that, I think, is going to be the model for other countries. And only very, very much after that are we going to see a true relaxation of social distancing. So the question, of course, when we can see some of this phased reopening, and Mark Lipsitch, an expert at Harvard, um, who has been one of the loudest voices in calling for extreme social distancing, said in a paper uh, just last week, quote, summertime social distancing can be less frequent. So we are indeed looking at maybe even early summer when some of these things can be relaxed. One idea being put forth about who can start going back to work involves serology testing. And that means testing people's blood for antibodies to see if they're already been infected and are now immune uh, to the coronavirus. How might that work as a strategy for gradually reopening the economy? So it's an interesting idea. Um, again, the idea is that if you have been exposed to the virus, um, whether or not you showed symptoms, because as we know, some people um, have either very mild cases or in fact do not ever show symptoms, and that they would therefore be forever protected against it, or at least protected against a recurrence in the next, let's say, year. The problem there is, and it's sort of ironic, um, so the United States is now approaching 200,000 cases. Clearly, that's going to go up. Is it going to get to be a million, two million? Let's say that that's the worst case scenario. The country has 330 million people. Obviously, not all of them work. So even if you were to say all of you people who have acquired immunity, you can start going to back to work. That's not a lot of people. That is not going to reopen the economy. So clearly, other steps have to be taken. The people who have immunity might be called up to be frontline responders, um, relieving people, especially doctors, nurses, and others who are still vulnerable to getting the infection. But you know, however many cases the United States eventually has, they are not going to reopen the economy. So one thing we're seeing across a number of these plans is local variation, the idea that some areas of the country may have to stay hunkered down for longer, while others can go back to relative normalcy more quickly. Is that feasible, given how much travel and interconnectedness there is between different communities in this country? 
Well, there's a lot less travel and interconnectedness, as we've seen. A lot of states um, and even um, municipalities are strongly discouraging anyone from hotspots, um, especially New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, from coming to them. And if they do, they're being subject to two weeks of quarantine. However, to your basic question, I think they're going to have to be remain travel restrictions if certain areas want to, quote, reopen First, and we're seeing clear signs of you know things getting better in the Bay Area and also around Seattle. But you know, as happened the first time around, um, the first cases came from elsewhere. So some kind of travel restrictions, I think, are going to have to remain in place for some time. And how does a vaccine fit into all of this? You know, even the most optimistic projections for a vaccine to become widely available are in the eighteen to twenty-four months range. Are there any elements of everyday life that may have to wait until we're all vaccinated? You know, Rebecca, I just can't imagine some of the scenes um, that have long been part of American life recurring anytime soon. I can't imagine, you know, Bourbon Street in New Orleans having shoulder-to-shoulder people anytime soon. I can't imagine that it would be a good idea for beaches in Florida to have young people, you know, cheek by jowl anytime soon. Even have to wonder, you know, sports events, music events where people, you know, sit so close to one another in their seats that again, their their shoulders are touching. It's hard to imagine venues that hold thousands of people going back to anything like normal soon. And even once a vaccine is available, of course, again, there's a lot of people in this country. How quickly even a an effective vaccine, one that has shown its efficacy in rigorous clinical trials, can be rolled out to everybody? That's a real question as well. I mean, we all remember that there are, in many years, shortages of flu vaccine, and not everybody gets that. So a lot of logistical hurdles to clear. Sharon, thanks again for your time and keep up the great reporting. Thanks, everybody. The coronavirus has made every person fearful of being infected, but it's especially dangerous for people with underlying health conditions. To better understand what it's like to live through this crisis while also dealing with a rare disease, we reached out to Gunnar Esiason. He is 28 and was born with cystic fibrosis. Gunnar is getting his MBA right now uh, while also serving as director of patient outreach for the Boomer Esiason Foundation. That's a nonprofit that advocates for the cystic fibrosis community. Gunnar, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thanks, Damien. Happy to be here. Gunnar, as someone who lives with cystic fibrosis, how has the pandemic affected you personally? You know, Rebecca, the uh, the pandemic has certainly been a challenge from the beginning. Uh, I've actually been in self-isolation since uh, the beginning of March. Uh, I'm a grad student at Dartmouth right now, getting my MBA and uh, Master of Public Health. And uh, we actually had a pretty significant scare when this all started. A healthcare worker at Dartmouth Hitchcock uh, up in Hanover had returned from Italy. He uh, was tested for coronavirus or, and was showing flu-like symptoms. Uh, and broke self-isolation and attended a party with the business school. So when that all happened uh, about a month ago now, it sort of brought everything very close to home. Uh, and since then, I've sort of been taking things very, very seriously. So Gunnar, in one of your blog posts, you wrote, quote, in some ways, I feel like I am used to health-related stress, but this is definitely a new level. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah. So, you know, I think people with cystic fibrosis, me included, we uh, are 
you know, taught from a very early age to take infection prevention and control very seriously. The reason being, you know, anything like a, a normal viral infection, whether it's the common cold or flu, can exacerbate our symptoms in a very serious way. You know, not so long ago, I was myself was on the precipice of end-stage illness. Um, I was in and out of the hospital probably every two months, if not you know, more frequently. And for a long time, I've been dealing with uh, the pressure of terminal illness and really life or death odds. So this time around with, uh, you know, the coronavirus sort of lingering in the background, it, you know, on one hand, it, it doesn't feel so new, but on, on another hand, it, you know, really does raise the stakes. Maybe a little bit of uh, some crude humor, but I was joking with my dad who, who played the NFL for a number of years that this is sort of like my Super Bowl. It really is putting all of my infection prevention skills to the test here. So Gunnar, you're also pretty big on social media. And I know recently you used Twitter to reach out to get the collective thoughts maybe from the broader cystic fibrosis community. What did you hear back from people? You know, I think there's definitely a degree of fear uh, and anxiety uh, coursing through the community. Uh, and I think that may be exacerbated primarily because of the messaging that is around the coronavirus. You know, whenever you hear a report or, you know, a new death toll or, or infection rate number, um, there's always a caveat at the end of every broadcast. It seems to be like, oh, but, you know, X number of people have been living with underlying condition or X number of victims of the coronavirus are, you know, also living with underlying conditions. So I think that messaging has really exacerbated the fear. But I think the internal messaging within the CF world, you know, we've been told to stay away from our clinics. We've been told to transition to telemedicine whenever possible. Those things have really, uh, I think, heightened the level of uh, really fear for people living with CF in this in this unpredictable time. So Gunnar, you and I connected on Twitter after you read a story that I wrote about the way the pandemic was forcing drug makers, you know, to suspend or even halt some clinical trials. You know, that obviously has big repercussions for people with rare diseases. What are you hearing about ways that drug makers and regulators are trying to respond to this issue? You know, I think it's a complex question. If anything good comes from this, it'll be how we look at clinical trials moving forward. You know, Vertex has said that they're going to try to you know, run some trials out of patients' homes. They're going to see if they can send study medications uh, to patients, to enrollees. So I'm hoping moving forward, that's something that is uh, that sees a reform because, frankly, clinical trials have been crying out for reform for a very long time. And, uh, you know, we can't let you escape without noting, as you did earlier, that your father is Boomer Esiason, the former NFL quarterback, now a football analyst and New York Sports Talk radio host. So any insight into how the NFL is dealing with the current <laughs> pandemic when it comes to the upcoming season? You know, I know my dad has said on his radio show that uh, the NFL has done the right thing by, you know, pressing forward with the NFL draft, which is coming up here in a couple of weeks. And I think that will give a lot of sports fans a uh, much needed uh, <laughs> distraction from all of this. I certainly uh, am looking forward to watching something other than coronavirus coverage on the news. So uh, I think that's right now the, the thing that's on the tip of every sports fan's uh, tongue at the moment. So Gunnar, your dad played most of his career with the Cincinnati Bengals and a bit of time with the New York Jets. But you've been living in New England for a while, attending college and, and now graduate school. So we have to know, are you a Patriots fan? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a Patriots fan, but I'm not a Patriots hater. Believe it or not, I'm actually a Green Bay Packers fan. I'm actually a, also a shareholder of the Green Bay Packers. The reason being, when I was a really little kid, uh, I thought the G on the helmet stood for Gunner. So uh, with that, I became a Packer, a rabid Packers fan. Uh, and then the year my dad retired, the Packers actually went to the Super Bowl. So uh, it was a very easy transition from me uh, back in the mid-90s. Well, Gunner, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Next 
Next up, we've got for you a special guest interview with Siddhartha Mukherjee. Sid, as many of our listeners know, is a Columbia University physician and a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Mukherjee's latest project is a documentary about human genetics called The Gene, An Intimate History. The documentary, which will air on PBS next week, is based on his 2017 book of the same name. This simplest of all molecules can carry the most complex of all information in the world. Yeah, Dr. Mukherjee is one of the executive producers of the documentary. The other executive producer is Ken Burns, sort of the dean of documentary filmmaking. The two of them had previously collaborated on a 2015 documentary adaptation of Dr. Mukherjee's 2010 book on cancer called The Emperor of All Maladies. Sid joins us now to talk about the gene. Sid, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Pleasure. So you're putting out this documentary at a moment where consumer genetics, whether via 23andMe or maybe to some extent the singer Lizzo, have really made this topic a mainstream part of pop culture. In making this documentary, how did you think about telling the story of genetics in a way that would feel fresh and surprising in that light? Well, so I think we made several choices. Um, One choice which was made early on was to put together the story of patients uh, in combination with the larger story, the historical journey of genetics. And so um, it makes it come alive. We see how genetics is changing. We see how it's changing the lives of people. We see a lot of the ethical concerns. The film opens, as you very well know, with the remarkable moment in which uh, the Chinese researcher uh, Jiang Kuihei announces that he had been using CRISPR, Cas9, to genetically engineer human embryos without really, really informing uh, the scientific community nor uh, his local uh, IRBs and so forth. The film begins with that bang, saying that this is not someone else's problem. This is a profoundly contemporary moment uh, that we need to come to terms with. And then it moves on to the stories of patients uh, whose lives are being transformed by various therapies, including genetic therapies. And in the meantime, it also braids together the historical journey of genetics, you know, the classical figures, Mendel, figures that you would know from history, Rosalind Franklin, Watson and Crick, you know, Marshall Nirenberg, so many others. So there's an emotional scene in the film where a young woman learns the results of a genetic test, whether she has an inherited disease or not. And I don't want to give away what happens, but given that you start and end the film with He Zhangkui and the uproar over germline editing, Do you foresee a day when those scenes no longer happen? And would that be a good or bad thing? Well, I think we're in a very ethically complicated landscape. As we point out in the film, powerful new technologies to change the human genome have been unleashed. Um, Right now, we are learning to use them in not in germline cells, but in somatic cells, just to be very clear about that, not in cells that are in sperm or egg or embryos but in cells like blood cells and other cell types, which are not transmitted across generations. That is where we are in terms of science right now, and we're moving forward very fast in that realm and arena. The issues there are safety, 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 and safety. I mean, can these technologies be used safely? And so far, uh, everyone's been watching with bated breath the capacity for us to use techniques such as CRISPR-Cas9 and others 
on somatic cells. The issue of going into the germline is a very difficult and a very ethically complex issue. I think there has to be a large, and there is going on a large international conversation around what circumstances should we allow this to be used in the germline, uh, that is in sperm cells, egg cells, or embryo cells. Uh, In what circumstances is it safe? One idea that's come out of it is that if there's a disease that is uh, controlled by a single gene, and if we are certain that that single gene is in fact causal and that changing it will be causally helpful, um, and if there's no other alternative, and most importantly, if there is extraordinary suffering involved uh, in that illness, um, then we should proceed with caution, but there's no absolute no. If, 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 if all those circumstances are met, then the general consensus seems to be building that we should, we should try. Now, as I said, those are many ifs, and very, very, very few diseases would qualify right now. Um, if we are to invade the human uh, germline using any of these new technologies, I see this happening, number one, sequentially, number two, under extremely constrained circumstances, Number three, with, uh, with, with a lot of caution and uh, really an international agreement that we should do this with the germline because we are essentially taking uh, uh, something into our hands that is human fate into our hands in a way we haven't before. So it is ex- extremely complex ethical territory. Well, sort of on that same topic, in the film, you also feature a woman who was born with a chondroplasia, which is the uh, most common cause of dwarfism. And she's adamant that her condition is not a disease, that a chondroplasia is is part of her identity, and that to erase it through gene therapy or CRISPR or some other modification would be to erase her. I was curious, how do you approach kind of telling a nuanced story like that for people who, you know, look at what some might say is the potential of this technology as something that is dangerous to their, their personal identities? That's right. So I very much wanted that story in the film. What she is saying is that this is not extraordinary suffering. This is who she is. She believes that there are multiple alternatives rather than invade the human genome to make the lives of people who have uh, achondroplasia perfectly suited to our contemporary environments. Uh, that's where the, that if would crumble, as it were. It, it, this would not be uh, a place that w- one would first go to look for eliminating uh, that gene or a set of genes uh, from the human genome. This would not qualify under the extraordinary suffering rule, as it were. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, Sid, tell us what it's like to work with Ken Burns. Do you have a story about him or maybe tell us you know, how he thinks about science? Well, I mean, Ken and I have struck up an incredible partnership, as you know, with Emperor. We are very simpatico. I have admired his work, of course, like millions of other people. And I only wanted him to make the gene and I only wanted him to make the Emperor of All Maladies. The story that I like about Ken is that the, the projects begin with a long walk across Central Park. Uh, we don't talk about the details. We talk about the feel. We think about science as a story of culture. Uh, just as the Civil War uh, informs contemporary American politics and culture and society about what we are today and who we are today, the human genome and its sequencing of the human genome informs American society and the world uh, about um, who we are, what we are, where we came from, where we're going, and what these changes are. So 
we don't make some artificial distinction between oh, doing a science film versus Ken doing uh, a film about uh, American history or jazz or the Civil War. We start with the uh, with the understanding that science is part of society. Science is very much part of culture. And therefore, our collaboration begins from there. It begins with a long walk across Central Park. Sid, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you'd like to hear next week, and how you're coping with the pandemic. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please, of course, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.